Hello, and welcome to the third in our podcast series entitled 10 in 10. Last week, I was joined by Jeffrey Gruder and Philippa Hopkins to discuss the uh, Supreme Court shipping case of Ocean Victory. Thank you for all of those who listened to that and who subscribed to it. This week, we look at a very different piece of litigation, the epic battle between BTA Bank and Mukhtar Abliazov. And I'm delighted to be joined for this discussion by two of the leading Chancery Commercial Juniors in Essex Court Chambers. That's Tim Aku and James Sheehan. Both of those joined chambers in recent years from Chancery Commercial sets. Tim is described in the legal directories as having commanding gravitas and being ferociously intelligent, a great advocate and a lovely man. James Sheehan is described in the directories as calm, charming advocate, exceptionally hardworking and a real team player. He is also in my experience, a really lovely man. Now, let's talk about the Abliazov litigation. Tim, perhaps we could start, if you could just tell us briefly what the case was all about. Thanks, Stephen, of course. Yes, in fact, it was a series of claims brought by the Kazakh BTA Bank against its former chairman, Mukhtar Abliazov, former officers and associated individuals and companies. It essentially alleged the misappropriation of about of about $5 billion between 2005 and 2009. The first claim was issued in August 2009 in the Commercial Court. Eight further Commercial Court actions followed. There was one in the Chancery Division and one in the BVI. As is usual with big fraud claims, uh, the case kicked off with a without-notice freezing order being made against Mr Abliazov. And as further actions were instituted, the maximum sum was increased. As a whole, the proceedings were characterised by intense interlocutory fighting over, first, the freezing order and its terms. Secondly, whether a receivership order should be imposed over Mr Abliazov's assets. And thirdly, whether Mr Abliazov should be committed for contempt of court. Alongside all of that, there were lots of applications about disclosure of Mr Abliazov's assets from both Mr Abliazov himself and also others, including solicitors and email service providers. Now, it felt at times like half the commercial chancery bar was working on the case. Just to give you a few stats on that, there are 98 BTA Bank decisions available on Westlaw. Most are from 2009 to 2015. The case went to the Court of Appeal 20 times and twice to the Supreme Court. And the case index to the White Book has 32 BTA Bank entries. Um, And to round off, I've selected a few quotes from the judges who heard the case over the years. The first one is from Mr Justice Tier, who was the assigned judge, who said in paragraph one of the judgment, this is an extraordinary case, full stop, paragraph two. Uh, In the same judgment, uh, he explained how the case was being litigated. He said this, It's being fought by the forensic equivalent of trench warfare. Very considerable evidence has been exchanged, a great many points taken. Every response is met with a determined counterattack on a related but different point. And so the process goes on. Progress, if any, is slow. But ultimately, the bank prevailed uh, and established that Mr Abliazov had committed contempt of court. In that context, Lord Justice Maurice Kay said this, it is difficult to imagine a party to commercial litigation who has acted with more cynicism, opportunism and deviousness towards court orders than Mr Abliazov. 
Thank you, um, Tim. Now, perhaps each of you could just explain briefly your roles in this epic piece of litigation. Well, I, I was instructed by the bank in 2009, um, and really I, uh, I, I stayed acting for the bank until um, a couple of years ago when the litigation slowed down. Um, so I was involved in um, all of the interlocutory fighting, including the, the receivership order and the committal application. Thanks, Tim. And James? Yes, thanks, Stephen. I, I was instructed uh, for the first time uh, for Mr. Abdiazov in the beginning of 2010, just when the receivership application that I think we're going to come on to talk about was uh, b- b- being prepared and pursued. I also was involved in the committal proceedings, and then I remained instructed by Mukhtar Abdiazov for a time after that, and then um, on a number of cases for associated defendants. Um, on other aspects to do with enforcement of the orders and so on, uh, up until I think um, the last time that Tim and I were against each other in this case in the Court of Appeal in 2018. I knew you'd mention that. That was one of the occasions where you beat me. I had to mention it. <laughs> <laughs> now, you've both mentioned, or at least Tim has in, in terms of the background, the receivership orders were made as well as the contempt applications for which the case is very well known. Perhaps we could just discuss briefly the receivership side of things that you mentioned there, James. Could you explain the background to that? Yes, so in 2009, that's when the bank obtained its first freezing order and then held on to it at the return date. Um, It also obtained an order for uh, the cross-examination of Mr. Abdiazov about his asset disclosure. That took place over a couple of days in October and November of 2009. And then in February 2010, the bank applied for interim receivers to be appointed over uh, Mukhtar Vyazov's assets. That was quite a bold step um, because the effect of it would have been and was to deprive Mr. Vyazov of control over his assets at, at the interim stage. It succeeded largely on the basis that his inadequate initial asset disclosure meant that there was a, a serious risk um, that he would breach the freezing order. The judgment of uh, Mr. Justice Tier at first instance was appealed. That went to the Court of Appeal on an expedited basis, and they handed down their judgment in, I think, October 2010. That was an important decision because they clarified the test for an appointment of an interim receiver. The test is if the freezing order provides inadequate protection because there's a measurable risk that a defendant may use his complex asset holding structures to breach its terms then a receivership order will normally be justified. But they're very expensive, uh, so they're probably only suitable for the very largest of cases. Um, You have to pay receivers, you have to pay their lawyers, they have to travel around the world, uh, getting control of hundreds of companies, if not thousands, and then understanding their assets and their businesses and so on. Uh, And in this case, the bank had to put up fortification in support of its undertaking in damages. Uh, The judge had ordered the bank to put up 20 million, and then the Court of Appeal uh, increased that to 40 million. So it wasn't cheap. No, not at all. And on the committal side, Tim, can you just help us understand the context for that? So by 2011, the bank had obtained some pretty invasive disclosure orders. Uh, we'll come back to those. Uh, but they showed that Mr. Abdiasov's brother in law was breaching the freezing order and seeking to breach the receivership order left, right, and centre. So the bank issued a committal application making 35 allegations of contempt covering a range of topics, um, that Mr. Abliasov had failed to disclose assets, that he'd dealt with assets in breach of the freezing order, and that he'd given false evidence on oath. 
Um, now, Mr. Ampliasov fought back and he said, firstly, the contempt application just shouldn't be dealt with before trial. If he was wrong about that, he said that only a very small number of allegations should be dealt with. And he said, in any event, the bank should give disclosure of adverse documents. Uh, now, on the first point, Mr. Justice Tier had no difficulty in concluding that some allegations of contempt should be dealt with sooner rather than later. If a freezing order is being breached, you want that to be stopped before trial. On the second point, how many allegations should go forwards? Mr. Abliasov had rather more success. Um, the judge said that the bank had to choose its three best allegations, one of failure to give disclosure, one of breaching the dealing provisions of the freezing order, and one of giving false evidence on oath. Now, the bank obviously chose the strongest and most wide-ranging allegations. Uh, including one which overlapped with an issue in one of the underlying claims. And that led to, of course, a, another interlocutory battle. Um, the Court of Appeal ultimately said that in the case of overlap, there was no firm rule. The court might think that it was appropriate to deal with an allegation on a contempt application that overlapped with an issue in the underlying proceedings. For example, that might shortcut the underlying litigation but it might think that that was the wrong thing to do. On the third issue, uh, whether the bank should give disclosure, uh, there was oddly no case in point. And so the judge said, making new law, that an applicant on a committal application should ordinarily give disclosure of unhelpful documents. Now, um, the trial of the committal application took place in December 2011. And just a bit of history, a reminder, uh, for some of those listening, the Commercial Court and the Chancery Division moved from the Royal Courts of Justice to the Rolls Building um, at about that time. And in fact, our trial was interrupted because the Queen uh, came to open the building officially uh, during the course of December. The purpose of the Rolls Building was, of course, to provide courts with modern and, and better facilities. But one of the facilities that the RCJ has, which the Rolls Building doesn't have, is that it doesn't have uh, cells. And so when the judge said on the last day of the trial of the committal application, which was taking place in the Royals building, uh, that he would give judgment um, in the Royal Courts of Justice, um, it could be said that that was to be read as a bad omen. Uh, now, uh, of course, as is now known, when the judge handed down his judgment in February in the Royal <laughs> Courts of Justice, he, he upheld almost all, not all, but almost all of the bank's allegations of contempt. Um, he did so in front of a packed courtroom uh, full of press and legal representatives. The main protagonist, though, Mukhtar Biazov, was, was not there. And um, Duncan Matthews, QC, uh, who, who appeared for Mr. Biazov at that hearing, uh, was left to explain to the court that um, Mr. Biazov had felt it was not in his interest to attend at court that day. He'd done a bunk. He had, in, in, in a turn of phrase, done a bunk. Now, he, he wasn't located until he was tracked, I think, eventually in a villa in the south of France. But just coming back to the day on, on which the judgment was handed down, he was sentenced to 22 months in prison, which is just short of the maximum period of two years. Later that afternoon, I think Tim and I had a, an outing in court uh, where Tim asked for and obtained uh, a bench warrant or some sort of order, seeing the ports or obtaining uh, orders for the apprehension of, of Mr. Blyazov. I can't remember the detail now. Um, not long after that, uh, later that month, in fact, the bank applied for an order that unless Mr. Abliazov surrendered to custody, 
and gave disclosure that he was found by the judge to have failed to give, uh, then he should be debarred, prevented from defending the bank's claims against him. And they did that on the basis of a principle which is fairly long-standing, that a person in contempt of court doesn't have the right to be heard by the court until his or her contempt is purged. Uh, now, the bank successfully relied on that to prevent uh, Mr. Abiyazov from defending the case at trial. And that was challenged, but the Court of Appeal upheld it. Um, although I think in the end, his counsel was allowed to address the court on questions of quantum and interest and uh, things of that sort. Uh, and equally, Mr. Abiyazov was prevented from addressing the court on issues regarding the freezing order. There was one application, I think, uh, ordering him to reverse uh, certain transactions, and I, I think he was prevented from uh, addressing the court on those. Characteristically for this case, the limits of the principle were explored by the bank, and there were two notable Court of Appeal decisions. Um, the, the first was in relation to Mr. Abiyazov's appeal against the committal findings themselves. A contempt law does not need permission to appeal findings of contempt, and so the bank sought to prevent Mr. Abiyazov from pursuing his appeal on the basis that he was a contempt law who had no right to be heard by the court. And what Lord Justice Moore Bick said in that context was that uh, it wasn't a straightforward principle that a contempt law didn't have a right to be heard. It really depended on whether it was in the interest of justice and proportionate to debar a contempt law from being heard. And on that case, he decided that when the whole purpose of being heard was to appeal against, i.e. to challenge the very finding of contempt, which was said to give rise to the debarring, uh, then it wouldn't be in the interest of justice or proportionate. Secondly, um, in a separate case, but relatedly, uh, Salim Shalabayev, who was a brother-in-law of Muqtab Lyazov, uh, was found in contempt for failing to comply with the terms of a Norwich Pharmacal order, which, as it happened, had been served on him as he left the Rolls building, having given evidence for Muqtab at the committal trial. And he was there to give evidence that a London property, which the bank claimed Mr. Abliazov had failed to disclose, in fact belonged to him, Salim Shalabayev. Now, that evidence was rejected. Much later, when the bank obtained its substantive judgment against Mukhtar, it sought a charging order against that London property. Now, Mr. Shadabayev objected to that because he said it belonged to him. Uh, and Mr. Justice Tier said that that was an abusive process for him to argue that because it had already been decided. And I think, as he said, it was as plain a case as there could possibly be of a collateral attack on his findings of committal. Uh, when Mr. Shalabayev sought and obtained permission to appeal against that, the bank said he shouldn't be entitled to proceed because he was also an unpurged contemnal. And the Court of Appeal rejected that argument. And there they said it would be disproportionate because the two issues, the Norwich Pharmacal Order and the appeal in relation to the charging order, were not sufficiently connected. Uh, and just to complete that, that little story, the appeal then proceeded and succeeded. And there was another trial of the very same issue and a different judge reach the same conclusion as Mr Justice Tia. <laughs> well, thanks to you both for that explanation. Um, this case really did test the boundaries of certain um, specialist jurisdictions, certainly in its interlocutory context, did it not? The, there were some pretty unusual and groundbreaking orders. Perhaps we can discuss a couple of those, Tim, um, including monitoring of emails, is that right? Yeah, that's right. Um, that, that was the, the, the first extraordinary order that I, that I wanted to talk about. Uh, the context was this, that, that by early 
2011, the bank had got some pretty strong evidence that Mr. Abliazov was using his brother-in-law to administer a vast offshore network of companies using Yahoo email addresses. One or two were, were in his name, but most were anonymous. Um, so we did some research and we worked out that those email addresses were administered by Yahoo's English subsidiary, um, which moreover held the data in the jurisdiction. And that led to an ex parte application against Yahoo for an order that Yahoo provide the entirety of the contents of those email accounts to a supervising solicitor, who would then review all of that material for relevance and privilege in the usual way and provide relevant documents to the bank solicitor. Perhaps most importantly, um, the, the judge was persuaded to make an order that Mr. Abliazov and his brother-in-law, who was using the email accounts, not be notified of the making of the order. Um, and that permission to, to delay notification lasted for about four months. So the upshot was that the bank got access to four months' worth uh, of emails, almost in real time, um, and was able to work out from that precisely how Mr. Abliazov's brother-in-law was controlling his corporate empire, much of which has be, had been undisclosed, and was, was then able to use all of that material to firstly expand the receivership order that had by then been made, and then secondly to um, support the contempt application. Um, the second example I just wanted to give, and this, this happened a bit later, uh, was that of electronic tagging. As James has said, Mr. Abliazov um, did a bunk after learning that he would be committed to prison for contempt of court. Uh, and after that, the bank wanted to ensure that those who were on the raw end of committal and other applications wouldn't simply leave the jurisdiction. Now, there are a few ways of doing that. Uh, for example, you can get an, an injunction requiring a respondent to deliver up his passport to the applicant solicitor. Uh, you can even, and this was something else that the bank did, obtain a curfew order requiring a respondent to stay at his house between certain hours. I think there was an M25 order that was made in one of the Abliazov cases requiring a respondent to stay within the, the confines of the M25 motorway. Uh, but, but the most extreme order uh, that was made in this context was an order that a respondent to a committal application be tagged by Serco and have his movements monitored. Um, and I suppose, really, that for me shows just how far um, you can push the envelope when you have really strong facts and just how far the courts are willing to, um, to go in using Section 37 of the Senior Courts Act which is, of course, drafted in very wide terms, uh, to try and help an applicant um, in a substantial fraud case. And in addition to those orders, directly against defendants or respondents, there were various orders of a groundbreaking nature against third parties caught up, such as solicitors. James, can you help us with that side of things? That's right. Going back to the day on which Mr. Avliazov was uh, committed in principle to prison, between the sentencing judgment and the trip to court to get the bench warrant that I was talking about a moment ago, the bank sought and obtained an order against his solicitors, Adelshaw Goddard, that they should disclose contact details that they had for Mr. Avliazov. 
and they they did so with no notice at all and Adelshaw had no representation and so in a slightly strange reversal of roles uh, we sat in front of the partners in Adelshaw Goddard while they stood up to address the court on their own behalf. Um, There was precedent for that decision um, and it had actually come from a different decision in the same case by a judge in the Chancery Division Um, and that's a case where uh, one of the brothers-in-law had failed to surrender following his committal to prison and his solicitors had been ordered to provide contact information for him. Having obtained the order on the hoof, as it it were, against Adelshaw Goddard on the day of the sentencing, they later came back to court to make a further application for more information about contact details. In particular, they sought details of a conference call facility that had been set up to allow Mr. Oblyazov to communicate with Adelshaws. And they also sought contact details of an email facility which was set up for, for much the same reason. And they said that they wanted this information because it might help them identify his whereabouts and, of course, then secure his surrender and compliance with the orders that had been made against him. In response to that application, Mr. Avliazov said that uh, this was a critically important facility that had been set up for him and that he would actually stop communicating with his solicitors uh, if the details of it were ordered to be disclosed. So that immediately gave rise to a tension between two principles. On the one hand, the bank was saying, some orders have been made by the court here, they've been breached, the court should do everything in its power to secure compliance with them. Uh, there's plenty of authority for that. Uh, secondly, though, uh, e- even a contemnor is entitled to legal advice and to claim privilege in that advice. And so in that case, Adelshaw Goddard said that the order that was being sought against that would make too much of an inroad into Mr. Avliazov's right to access legal advice and claim privilege in it and the judge agreed. And, and so in that case, the tension was resolved in favour of Mr. Abliazov and his solicitors. Thank you for that. Now, amongst the 98 decisions in this case that appear on a Westlaw surge, two of those, as we know, went all the way to the top, to the Supreme Court. The first of those was Abliazov number 10, back in 2015. Tim, maybe you can just explain something about that. This one arose in the context of the worldwide freezing order, I believe. Yeah, this is all about um, how Mr. Abliazov funded the litigation and his lifestyle. Um, In essence, the bank said he wanted to fund all manner of co-defendants and to spend more than the £10,000 a week he was allowed pursuant to the freezing order. Um, And one way in which he did this was by entering into loan agreements with ostensibly independent third party companies um, who he directed to pay lawyers and to pay his living costs direct. Um, He said this wasn't a breach of the freezing order because borrowing money didn't amount to disposing of, dealing with or diminishing the value of any of his assets and therefore didn't amount to a breach of the freezer. The bank's main argument was that this was just wrong as a matter of law. Um, The bank said if you have a right to borrow $1 million from a bank, then that's a shows in action. If you borrow half a million, you've diminished the value of that shows in action. And if you borrow the full $1 million, the shows in action ceases to exist, and so you've disposed of it. Now, it's fair to say the Supreme Court had some sympathy with that argument, but they said that... There was a series of first instance decisions 
that said that borrowing money was not a breach of a freezing order and that respondents and their legal advisers had relied on those decisions for over a decade and so they shouldn't be overturned. But that wasn't an end to the argument. The bank had another string to its bow. It said that even if its main argument was wrong, it could rely on the wide definition of assets in the standard form freezing order. Uh, And as those of us who do lots of work in this area know, that definition of assets says a defendant's assets include any asset which he has the direct or indirect power to dispose of or deal with as if it were his own. A defendant is to be regarded as having such power if a third party holds or controls an asset in accordance with his direct or indirect instructions. Uh, And so the bank linked this part of the freezing order with the loan agreement in issue, uh, which said that the proceeds of the loan could be used at Mr. Abliasov's, quote, sole discretion. And the bank linked this part of the freezing order with the loan agreement in issue, which said that the proceeds could be used at Mr. Abliasov's sole discretion, and that he had a power to direct the lender to transfer the proceeds to any third party. Um, And so the lender was holding and paying its own money in accordance with Mr. Abliasov's direct instructions, and so the money was caught by the freezer. And the Supreme Court accepted that analysis. That's right. Um, One way of reading that decision is that it was a decision on the proper interpretation of the words which Tim has just read out. Um, Did the loan agreement fall within those words? Answer, yes, it did. But another way of looking at it is that what's going on here is a tension between two competing principles. One is that um, the touchstone for what is caught by a freezing order is what is owned by a defendant. It talks about the defendant's assets. Uh, And so uh, going against the decision of the Supreme Court, you could say, well, clearly uh, the monies that are held by the lender belong to the lender. They're not Mr. Abliazov's assets. Uh, on, On the other hand, I think what is exemplified by the Supreme Court's decision is a, is a competing theory, which is that it's not simply ownership, which is the touchstone here, but control. In, in this case, Mr. Abliazov essentially had control of what happened to the monies. So he could direct that they be applied to one purpose or another at his own discretion. And that ownership versus control debate is one which it wasn't started by this decision of the Supreme Court, uh, but it was well illustrated by it. And in an earlier case, and not long before the Supreme Court decision called uh, Lacatamia Shipping and Sue, that was a decision of the Court of Appeal. There, the Court of Appeal had essentially said that the touchstone was ownership uh, and that the words that Tim had quoted from the order were not apt to cover, in that case, assets of a company which was owned by the respondent to the freezing order. And the Lacatamia case wasn't really addressed head on by the Supreme Court in Avliazov. And so that decision left an unresolved tension. Now, having been to the Supreme Court to create that tension, Tim came back to court later in 2018 um, for a different client to try and resolve it. Uh, And that case was called FM Capital Partners and Marino. Uh, And in in that case, Tim, I think, successfully argued that what's sometimes known as that extended definition, the words that say an asset is within the freezing order if the respondent has the power to dispose of it as if it's his own, that catches control without the need to show ownership. But in resolving that issue, 
uh, at least partly by holding that the Supreme Court should be taken to have impliedly overruled the Court of Appeals decision in Nakatomia. Uh, the court in the FM Capital and Partners case then created another issue. What actually amounts to control in any given case? And so this is a debate which, uh, having been given fire by the Ebliasov decision in the Supreme Court, still rumbles on. Well, absolutely. So the first visit of this case to the Supreme Court in 2015 really lies at the, uh, the frontiers of the procedural law relating to freezing orders, and that's a, a, quite a hot topic in itself. The second visit to the Supreme Court a few years later in 2018 concerned an issue of substantive law, namely the proper scope or ingredients of the tort of unlawful means conspiracy. Tim, could you just explain to us what that was about? Of course. Um, So this happened a bit later on in the piece. The bank um, obtained some pretty strong evidence to suggest that Mr Abliazov's son-in-law, a man called Ilyas Krapanov, was helping Mr Abliazov to breach the freezing order. Um, And so the bank wanted to bring a claim against Mr Krapanov. The problem was that Krapanov was in Switzerland, and by the time the claim was issued, Mr Abliazov had long fled the jurisdiction. And so the bank needed both a jurisdictional hook to get the claim up and running in England, and also a cause of action. We went away and thought about it, and we came up with a claim in English law uh, in the tort of unlawful means conspiracy, the unlawful means being breaches by Mr Abliazov of the freezing order and the receivership order. Uh, But that was controversial because contempt had never previously been relied upon as unlawful means for the purposes of the conspiracy tort. Um, That said, the argument that contempt was sufficiently unlawful for conspiracy succeeded at all three levels. The bank essentially said that um, it could take the Supreme Court's previous decision in Total Network and HMRC which held that crime counted as unlawful means, even if it wasn't, wasn't independently actionable, uh, and argued that um, conspiracy was sufficiently analogous with crime that it too should constitute unlawful means. And there was a jurisdiction point that arose in the conspiracy context as well, wasn't there, James? That's right. Uh, in order to establish jurisdiction, the bank relied on Article 5.3 of the Lugano Convention. Um, Now, that article, just to remind the listeners, provides that in matters relating to tort, the courts for the place where the harmful event occurred or may occur have jurisdiction. And this case was not simple because it may have been that all the acts that were actually carried out pursuant to the bank's alleged conspiracy uh, took place somewhere outside the jurisdiction. And so what the bank argued was that it was enough to get them within Article 5.3 that the conspiracy had actually been hatched in the jurisdiction, even if the actual acts that were then taken pursuant to it happened in England. And that also succeeded the Supreme Court then endorsing a test of what conduct essentially sets the tort in motion. Brilliant stuff. Now... Trying to summarise a case like this and its impact on English law, procedural and substantive, um, is not an easy task. I'm going to ask both of you to to have a go at that. Uh, James, perhaps if you can start, in terms of substantive law and procedural law, what was the lasting impact of Abliazov? 
there was some substantive law, for example, the decision of the Supreme Court that Tim was just explaining in 2018 uh, about a conspiracy. There were others, for example, a court of appeal decision, the one actually that I mentioned, who was the last case where Tim and I were against each other, where the court clarified uh, what it means for the purposes of Section 423 of the Insolvency Act 1986 uh, for somebody to enter into a transaction for the purpose of putting assets beyond the reach of creditors. We don't have time to get into that in any detail, but um, that touches on the substantive law. But really, there was just a huge amount of procedural law. And I think Tim's explanation, which you've referred to, Stephen, of the 98 decisions on Westlaw, really just, just shows that the vast majority of those cases are not cases which are on the substantive law of deceit or conspiracy. Their decisions about the procedure, uh, everything from interpretation of freezing orders, uh, privilege. One other important case that we haven't talked about is a, a decision of Mr. Justice Popplewell on the crime fraud exception to privilege. Other decisions turning on issue estoppel and abuse of process. I think the most important decision from that perspective is probably the Supreme Court's decision in 2015 about the proper scope of a freezing order. But there are many others. And as, as we've already said, the, the boundaries of the court's procedural powers were explored on, on multiple occasions. They were, and none more so, in a sense, uh, relating to the process of committal for contempt. Tim, um, this case, in some ways, marks, if not the high watermark, then definitely the epitome of the use of what's become known or became known as sanctions-based litigation. Could you just explain um, how it fits into that as a litigation strategy more generally? courts no doubt pushed the boundaries in the Abliazov case. But the bank, on the other hand, had very strong facts. And and by the time that the bank applied for unless orders um, in relation to Mr. Abliazov, it had extremely serious contempt findings that it could pray and aid. Um, I think I should say, though, that the bank didn't always get it right. Uh, there was one committal application it made against a minor figure in Mr. Abliazov's empire that was um, was both lost and when appealed, it was the subject of severe criticism by the Court of Appeal for, for going too far and being too aggressive. And it's really that, um, that fault line that the courts have been grappling with over the last decade. Um, my perception is that there's been a significant uptick in the number of contempt applications, partly perhaps as a result of Abliazov. And on the right facts, and as a, as a last resort, contempt is an entirely justified procedure. But, but my take is that it should be regarded as the nuclear option uh, to be pursued only if absolutely necessary. And we can perhaps find reflection of that in the recent Chinookan and Deripaska case. Um, that was when a contempt application went wrong. Um, so unlike with Abliazov, where there were um, allegations of breach before trial, where compliance with the freezing order very much mattered, the application in Chinookan and Deripaska was made after the underlying award had been paid in full. Um, and it was also made notwithstanding the fact that the applicant seeking to commit Mr Deripaska to prison for contempt knew all about the alleged breach at the time and did nothing to stop it or even suggest it was improper. And ultimately, that led to the application being struck out on day three of the contempt trial as an abusive process, with very serious findings being made against both Mr. Chinookin and his lawyers. Indeed, and that's a salutary lesson. Of course, contempt is only one of the sanctions 
available in what we call sanctions-based litigation. James, can you just help us with what other sanctions are readily available? Yeah, certainly. I think there's a, a temptation, perhaps because of what happened in, in Avliazov, where there was uh, a, a substantial committal application, it was substantially successful, and the bank um, succeeded in its strategy thereafter of preventing Mr. Avliazov from defending the, the claims for billions of dollars against him. The temptation to look at that and think that's a that's a great strategy. Uh, we we should use that. Every claimant should use that because it means that you can actually get a judgment without having to prove your case um, or at least having your case resisted. But as Tim said, Abiyazov was a case with with very special facts, and and not every case is is that special. I think also defendants in fraud cases are becoming more savvy to this tactic and. One, one sees arguments about abuse of process that get sort of epitomized, I think, by the, this recent Deripaska decision. One sees those a, a little more. Um, and as you said, Stephen, there are other ways of, of approaching this. Um, there are other sanctions that can be applied to defendants who don't comply with court orders. In principle, for example, uh, what the bank could have done in Abliazov simply apply for an order that Mr. Abliazov be prevented from defending the claims against him because he'd breached freezing orders. And it's not always straightforward, but there may be some scenarios where that sort of finding could be made on the balance of probabilities without a huge trial. There may be clearer cases where one doesn't need contested witness evidence and so on. And in those kinds of cases, um, committal is probably very much a sledgehammer to crack a nut. In other cases, there, there may be options to compel defendants to comply, like restricting their use of frozen funds so that unless they comply with orders... Uh, that made against them, they can't effectively fund their their defence to the claim. And other things, uh, one one does see quite frequently applications for committal pursued on the basis that um, parties have failed to give proper disclosure and and pressure needs to be brought to bear on a party in order to comply with those and so on. And and there are other ways of going about that. For example, the court has powers to make invasive, very invasive orders in respect of disclosure. It can, in the right case, order parties to deliver up devices to be imaged and searched. And effectively, the disclosure process in a substantive case could be taken over in the right case by by the other side. So I guess the lesson to to be learned from not perhaps Abliazov itself, but what's come after it is that committal is absolutely the right strategy in the right case. Um, But not every case is like that. Well, thank you both, uh, Tim and James, for those incredibly helpful and practical insights into litigation of this kind, large-scale fraud litigation that's fast-moving. And like we discussed, 98 separate hearings or decisions in the case, truly epic litigation. Please join me next week for episode four in the 10 in 10 podcast series, when I'll be joined by Alison McDonald, QC, and Jackie MacArthur to discuss a major case in the field of public international law. I'd just like to give thanks to Catherine Radcliffe, the junior tenant in Chambers, for assistance in research on the Abliazov matter. I've been Stephen Hausman, your host for this podcast series. I hope you enjoyed this particular one. Please subscribe to be the first to hear when the next episode is out. 